Exodus 16 is in some ways a famous story. It's the story of God providing manna, bread from heaven for the people of Israel during their wilderness, uh, time in the wilderness. It's a familiar story, but as I've been reading it, I've yet again heard God speaking to me from his word. And so it's just so exciting to be able to get into Exodus 16 and go, okay, what is it that God has got to say to us this afternoon uh, as, as we look through it? So I've been loving being um, back in Exodus uh, and we're going to spend this afternoon just looking at this great chapter, Exodus 16. And I want to start by talking to you about remembering, remembering things. I'm often struck by the fact that remembering is a strange thing. The way we remember things is quite odd. How we remember and what those memories mean, it can be quite hard to untangle. So, for example, do I remember playing cricket with my granddad on the beach or in a car park, more in a car park, or do I simply remember seeing a photograph of it? Do I actually remember that happening, or have I just heard people talk about it to such an extent that it's become a part of my, my history? Uh, and if I do remember it, if, I do, if that is an actual memory, do I remember it fondly because it reminds me of my granddad, or do I remember it fondly because I actually enjoyed it at the time? It's, it's quite hard to disentangle those things, to know what the memory is. Is it actually my genuine memory? And the way that I remember it, is that down to how I, is that, does that actually reflect how I actually experienced it at the time? People um, often say that memories play tricks on us. But I think it's perfectly possible that many of the tricks our memories are playing on us are not only unnoticed by us, so we don't even know that it's happening, but actually more than that, it would, it would be impossible for us to notice. It would be impossible for us to ever tell whether that memory was genuine or whether that has been changed over time by the telling of the story, by a whole load of factors that have altered the way we remember that event. Ath and I have recently been watching um, the TV series. It's on BBC called Ghosts. Um, it's a comedy made by the guys who made Horrible Histories. Um, and, and the basic premise is that there's this, there's this woman, and she has a near-death experience, and the result of this near-death experience, she can see ghosts. She can see all the ghosts from her, from her house. Uh, and one of the ghosts in the house is this Georgian sort of noble woman called Kitty. And Kitty is incredibly pos positive and incredibly excited about everything. You know, everything is amazing and brilliant, and she loves everything, and she's con constantly having the best time ever. And as she looks back on her life, she always looks back on her life as if it was the greatest thing. She, was, she had a loving sister. She had a supportive family. Every experience she had was the best experience of her life. And, and as she's telling these stories of her life, there's one episode where she starts telling the, the other people about what actually happened. And as they're listening, it, it dawns on them that actually her family weren't at all loving towards her. In fact, they treated her terribly throughout. And actually her sister, who she thought was devoted to her, was actually the whole time conspiring against her. You see, her memory of that, of that occasion is completely detached from the actual reality of it. Now, now that is, that's an extreme example from, from a comedy TV show, so maybe don't read too much into it. But we all have elements of the same. We all have a tendency 
to look back at events with rose-tinted spectacles. The, the gig that you went to that was, in reality, shorter than it should have been, where, if you're honest, the lead singer's vocals were a bit ropey, and where you got incredibly frustrated because it took you three hours to get out of the car park at the end, becomes, over time, the best night of your life. Your wedding, I'm on dodgy ground here, which was actually a little bit stressful, and you were glad to see the back of, becomes the happiest day of your life as you look through the photo album. You look through at the pictures and how great everyone looks and everyone's smiling. And over time, that you remember that as the best day of your life. The reality was you found it stressful, you were glad to see the back of it. The holiday, which left you exhausted and deeply in debt, becomes the trip of a lifetime by a few months later when you're talking to your friends about it. Your first boyfriend, with whom you fought every day and were glad when it was over, becomes the one who got away once a few decade, decades have passed. This is what we do. We, we constantly alter our past as time goes on. We remember it differently. And over time, the way we remember it becomes the reality as far as we're concerned. We could no longer dis disentangle what actually happened from all this other stuff that we've put on the memory. Now, the story we're looking at today begins with some pretty powerful misremembering. I'm going I'm to read the start of the passage. It's on Exodus 16, so if you've got a Bible, have it open. It's quite a long passage. I'm just going to read a few verses now, and then we'll read the rest of it in a minute. Um, but it, it's, let, me, let me begin. Exodus 16, uh, starting just the first three or four verses. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, after they had come out of Egypt, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to him, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now, just in case you're not familiar with the story of Exodus so far, let me just remind you what life in Egypt was actually like for the Israelites. So they, were, they weren't sitting around pots of meat, eating as much as they wanted in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. So they, they had been enslaved by the Egyptian empire, by the pharaoh. And actually, worse than that, not only were they slaves, but as they began to grow numerically, the pharaoh decided that they were too threatening, so decided he was going to kill all their, their sons for a period of time. So they are slaves who are having their children killed, and they are forced to work on these great building projects that the Egyptian empire is working on. And when they start to say, oh, maybe we'd like to not be slaves, then the pharaoh decides that as a result of this, he's going to make them build without any of the materials to build with. So now they're going to have to build the same amount, but without the straw or whatever else they needed to build with. And so when they then demand to leave, the pharaoh says, no, you're not allowed to leave. And for months and months, this goes on. And when eventually they do leave, he then pursues them with an army of chariots in order to kill them. This is the story of the Israelites in Egypt. That's what happened. And this is how the people of Israel remember it. We sat around pots of meat and ate as much as we wanted. The disconnect between what actually happened and the way they look back on it is complete. 
That reality is a long way removed from this vision they have of what life in Egypt was like. So what on earth is going on here? How have they, in a a few short months, gone from being in slavery to the Egyptians to this completely warped view of what life was like there? Well, there's a few things going on, but primarily, I just want to suggest, it's something that human beings do all the time. We do it all the time. We rewrite history. We recreate the past. And the way it tends to work is when things get difficult, we do three things. First, we look for someone to blame. So when things get difficult, we look for someone to blame. This is your fault. So here, the, the Israelites blame Moses and Aaron. This is your fault. Look where you've led us. Look how you've ruined my life. And by extension, God. You might have found yourself doing this. Have you ever found yourself doing that? Things have got difficult in your life. And in a moment, you go, oh, I was, I was all right till you came along. Oh, it would have been fine if you hadn't done this thing. We look for someone to blame. So that's the first thing we do. And the second thing we do is we look to vindicate ourselves. So we've blamed someone, and now we want to excuse ourselves. And the way we excuse ourselves is by saying, I had it all under control until you got involved. I'd have been fine if it wasn't for you. Everything was going swimmingly. I was quite happy in slavery in Egypt, eating my pots of meat around the fire, thank you very much, until Moses and Aaron came along and spoiled it all. I was doing just fine without you, thank you very much. So we blame someone, and we excuse ourselves. This is what we do when things get difficult. And then... The the final thing we do, which is the bit I've just been talking about, is we then rewrite the past. Things were so much better before. Things are difficult now, and we imagine that a month ago, two months ago, a year ago, everything was so much better. Now, Now, the reason why responding to difficult times like this is so problematic is because it leads to the classic problem of one step forward, two steps back. Just as you're working through something difficult... You suddenly go, oh, well, actually, it was all this person's fault, and, it, and I had it all in the court, and things were so much better then, and so we go back. We, don't, we never progress. Like the Israelites, it's, the example would be like the Israelites having finally won their freedom and escaped the mighty Egyptian empire, walking back there and saying, please, Mr. Pharaoh, could we be your slaves again if we ask nicely? You know, having just done the difficult work got into, won their freedom, now they're wanting to go back. Don't we do this all the time in our lives? Just as we're progressing out of something, it all feels a bit too difficult, and so we revert back. We go back to how life was before. Now, that would have been disastrous for the Israelites to do, and it's disastrous when we do it. It makes a mockery of our hard work, of those hard-won victories, and it would, leave, it would have left them in a terrible position, and it would leave us in terrible position. You see, this is what's going on with the Israelites here. This is what they're doing. It's, da- it's a dangerous position to be in. And yet, I want to suggest that we feel the same temptation. We know what it is to behave like these Israelites do. Because what is the period that they're in at this moment? Well, the period they're in is this period where they have been rescued out of Egypt. So Moses come, they've been, they've been rescued from slavery. But they haven't yet got to the promised land. I think Scott was talking about this last week. So they've been rescued already, but they haven't yet got to the promised land. And this is what we're going to be looking at over these chapters in Exodus. The period between their rescue 
and them arriving at the land God's promised to them. What is the equivalent for us? That is the time we live in. If you are a Christian here today, this is the period of time you are living in. You are living in wilderness times, the time after the rescue, before you arrive at the promised land. That's where we are. We have been rescued. Christ has come. We have been saved, but we haven't yet reached the promised land. We're on the journey, having been rescued, to the promised land. And so if you are a Christian today, you are living the same period as these Israelites were. And because of that, so many of the lessons that we're taught, in, even in the New Testament, you see this again, they point us back to this time, to the wilderness. They say, don't do what they did in the wilderness. Do do these things that they do in the, do in the wilderness. Because we're living the same time. How do you live a life where you have been rescued, but you haven't yet reached the promised land? What are the risks? What are the dangers? And one of the risks is that when we hit some difficult times, When we hit a moment where we feel like God isn't providing what I need, when money is tight or relationships are strained and we begin to wonder where God is in all of it, when we hit a time when our faith feels hard to hang on to, when God feels distant and trying to obey him feels too hard and not worth the effort, then this is what we do. We do exactly the same as the Israelites. We start reimagining our life before we knew Jesus. We start writing a new narrative of our past. Let me give you some examples of the way we do it. We go, oh, do you remember before we were Christian, we used to go out every Friday night and get absolutely smashed. We used to go out, drink loads, we were constantly laughing. We used to dance the night away. They were the best nights, weren't they? The reality is they were not the best nights. There was a blistering row in most of them. In reality, you were bored most of the time. You did so many things you regret during those times. You went to bed miserable more times than you'd like to remember, and you woke up the next day feeling lousy. But that's not what we remember. What we remember is, oh, do you remember when we laughed? Do you remember those dancers? Do you remember when that song came on? We rewrite the past. We reimagine what our life was like when we weren't following Jesus. Let me give you another example. You go, oh, do you remember what your life was like before you were a Christian? Do you remember how you never had to feel guilty about things? You were just so carefree. You know, Christianity came and it brought all this guilt into my life and I feel guilty about so many things. Before I was a Christian, I never felt guilty. But the reality was, you weren't this carefree, happy-go-lucky person before you became a Christian. You still were anxious. And added into that, you were also purposeless. And you still had plenty of guilt You just had nothing to do with that guilt. The guilt was just there, unacknowledged, unconfessed, and unforgiven. But that's not what you remember. The way you remember it is, life was so easy then, I never had to feel guilty about anything. It's not the reality, but we've just recreated it. And over time, that becomes the reality to us. We can no longer disentangle that from how things actually were. Or or let me give you another example. Do you remember that time before you were a Christian, and you had all that time in your life? Your Sundays were so relaxing before you started going to church and you had to worry about that. Your weeknights were your own to do with as you wanted before you joined a life group. And you look back at those those times and think, oh, life was so much easier then, I was so much less busy. But that wasn't the reality. The reality was quite different. You were lonely and isolated and bored. You went to bed wondering what you were doing with your life. And of course, crucially, 
Before you were a Christian, you didn't know the God who made you. You didn't know he loved you unconditionally. You didn't know his forgiveness. You didn't know the joy which comes from obeying him and living for him. You didn't know all these things. So this is what we do. We do exactly the same as the Israelites. We look back at that time before we were rescued and we start rewriting in our heads. We start twisting the story. We start imagining that it was this dream life when it was nothing of the sort. And I want to suggest that that is just, plain and simply, the deceptiveness of sin. That's all that is. It's all that's going on there. Because the deceptiveness of sin is forward-looking. By that, I mean it promises us something that something will be great in the future and then fails to deliver. So the deceptiveness of sin is forward-looking. It deceives us about what sin will do in the future. But it's always also backwards-looking. It convinces us that things were great, which never actually were. We're just like the Israelites, looking back at Egypt and saying, weren't things so great then when we were drifting without purpose, without forgiveness, without freedom, without God? Wasn't that the best life? Didn't we love it back then when we were powerless to resist sin, enslaved by it, and unaware that freedom was even a possibility? See, that's, that's, that's a human condition. It's the deceptiveness of sin. Sin will be doing this work in your heart over and over and over again. It'll have already done it so many ways in your life, and you won't have even noticed. And so the question is then, what do you do about that? If this is just a human condition, if we all do it, if sin is deceptive and it is going to rewrite our histories, then how do we avoid that? How do we combat that? What can we do about it? Because it happens without us noticing it. So what could we possibly do about it? Well, the answer is that there are some steps we can take. And we can see what those steps are by reading on, fortunately. So let's get back into Exodus 16, starting in verse 4, I think. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, in the evening, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord because he heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? But they didn't know what it was. Moses said to them, it's the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. 
Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded. And it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. So, that's what happens. That's the story. And I just want to come back to the question that we asked before we read the story, which is, how do you avoid that kind of rewriting of our past? How do you avoid the deceptiveness of sin telling you that life was so much better before you knew God, before you followed him, before you lived for him? Well, I think we're given the answer at the end. What we do is we put in place things that will help us remember accurately. That's what they do, isn't it? That, it's interesting. So many of the verses at the end are actually about how do the people remember what God did in giving them manna? You see, you've got the story of the manna in the middle. We'll come to that in a minute. But at the end, what you've got is how are you going to remember that time accurately? And so what are they meant to do? Well, the Israelites are to keep some of the manna, to store it with the laws that God's about to give them as a constant reminder of his goodness. Next time they're tempted to think that God had given up on them, they could look at the manna, they could see it physically there and remember how God had provided for them with manna for that day and the next day and the next day. The next time they were tempted to think that following God was too hard, they could look to the manna and remember that God had carried them through that hard time. Next time they were tempted to give up on God, they could look at the manna and remember how glad they were that they didn't give up then, that they weren't now back as slaves in Egypt like they'd wanted to be. You see, this is what we need to do. You need to put things in your life that help you remember God's goodness, that help you remember accurately what God has done for you. This is why, as a church, we like to look back and remember how God has blessed us over the past eight years since we started. That's why we do that. That's why we tell that story, so that we remember it, so that it doesn't get corrupted by the deceptiveness of sin. We want to keep telling that story and reminding ourselves of how God has been good to us. That's why we sing songs which say things like, all my life you have been faithful, which say things like, 
who else would die for our redemption? We sing these songs so that we remember accurately what God has done. What he has done in our life, or my life he has been faithful, but also what he has done in the person of Jesus. Who else would die for our redemption? We put things in our life to help us remember what God has done for us. That's why we open the Bible and we read again and again of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. Because without those things, we forget. And when we forget, the past starts changing in our minds. You see, we mustn't forget. So, uh, I guess that the application for you guys and for me is pretty simple. You need to sing of God's goodness. You need to read your Bible and remind yourself of what God has done for you. You need to meditate on God's work in your life. You need to spend some time sitting back and going, wait a minute, what has God been doing in my life? Where has he been at work? You need to talk about all the things that God has done. You need to put prompts up to help you remember. Put dates in your diary. Put meetings, meetings for you to intend. Put some notes on your fridge. Like whatever it is that is going to help you remember what God has actually done for you. Because if you don't do that, you will misremember. And when you misremember, you will start to make bad decisions. You'll start to imagine how much better life would be without God. How much better it was back in Egypt, back before you knew him. You'll lose sight of all that God's done. You'll start rewriting your past. And all of a sudden, you'll be nowhere. So, this, this section, this passage, this story, it's a lesson for us in remembering. How do we remember what God has done? But it's, it's not just a lesson in that. It's also, if you look at that kind of middle section, it's a lesson in daily dependence on God. It's so clearly about that. I don't know if you noticed it as we were reading through it. The emphasis is again and again on the fact that the Israelites were only supposed to take enough manna for one day. It seems to be like the, most, the bit they're most interested in the story. It's the thing they spend most of the time telling you over and over again. They were only meant to take one day. They took enough manna for one day. If they took enough manna for two days, it went rotten. They could only take enough manna for one day. Like, like just again and again, we're told that. Not too much not too little. God's provision for them was sufficient for that day. God planned this provision in such a way that every day the Israelites had to depend on God. I mean, that's the way he provided. He didn't provide them with a, a month's worth of manna and say, just divvy that up between you over the next month. It's not what he did. He could have, but he didn't. He didn't provide them with a week's worth. He provided them every day with precisely a day's worth, apart from Fridays, where he provided them with two days' worth. That's what he did. Why? Well, because he wanted them to learn that every day they had to rely on him. They couldn't store it up and then rely on their stockpiles. Every day, their only hope for the next day was that God would provide again. Now, this 
that idea is contrary. It cuts against middle-class Britain's way of working. It's just not how we work at all. We wouldn't dream of working like that. We like to have a healthy balance in reserve, don't we? You know, put it away for a rainy day. Need to have at least three months kind of, kind of flex, kind of left over there just to keep yourself going. We like to know that we have enough for today and tomorrow and next week and the next month and the next year, maybe the next decade. That's how we like to function. It's not at all like this. Can you imagine trying to live like these Israelites did? I've got enough for today. What happens tomorrow? Well, God provides again. Great. And then what happens tomorrow? God provides again. And that's, that was how they had to live. Imagine living like that. Can you imagine? It's just so far removed from how we organize our lives, from how we think about our lives. Living like the Israelites did is nothing like how we live. But I just want to make clear, there is no bank balance. There is no amount of resources that can actually provide you with the security that you are longing for. That it just doesn't exist. Jesus again and again reinforces this point. I mean, there's a couple of prime examples he does that. He tells a story about a guy who gets a harvest and he gets such a big harvest that he can't fit it in his barns. He's got all this food, he's got all this wealth, all these resources, he can't fit it in his barns. So what's he going to do? He's going to build bigger barns. Isn't this what we do? We get enough, you know, I just need enough for a year. No, I need enough for three years. Now I've got enough for three years. No, I need enough for five years. No, we just, we just constantly want bigger and bigger bonds. So that's what he does. He's like, I've got all this stuff, but what I need is bigger bonds so I can store even more of it. And what does Jesus end that story by saying? He says, you fool, tonight your very life will be, depended on, will be demanded of you. What's the point of the story? There is no amount of food in a barn that is going to give you security from death. There's, there's no amount. It doesn't matter how big your barns are doesn't matter how many you have, how, how much resource you have, it cannot give you the security you want. Or, or to take another example, what does Jesus teach us to pray? He teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Not, give us this day our daily bread and enough daily bread for the next week, month, year. It's not what he, that's not what we're told to pray. We're told to pray, give me enough for today. He's clearly got Exodus 16 in his mind when he's, tell, when he's saying that, hasn't he? that God provided them with their daily bread, the bread they needed for their day every single day. The Christian life is one of daily dependence on God. Every day, as they ate their manna, they would have asked the question, but what about tomorrow? You know, imagine sitting down for your evening meal, you know, you with maybe a few kids, and you sat down, and your kids say to you, oh, what are we eating tomorrow? And they go, oh, we're going to have manna again. And they go, all right, well, where is it? They're like, oh, well, we don't have it yet. Well, God's going to provide it. Every day, you'd have to have the same conversation. Oh, what are we going to have tomorrow? Well, manna. Well, where's it going to come from? God's going to provide it. The next day, God's going to provide it. The next day, God's going to provide it. That was their life. Every day. We've got enough for today, but tomorrow we starve. Unless God provides. That was how they lived. That is a Christian life, asking for God's provision for today and then trusting that he will again provide for tomorrow. If you want to live a full life, you have to get used to trusting God for today and leaving tomorrow's worries to him. 
I mean, this isn't just an idea I had from Exodus 16. It's said over and over again in the Bible. Jesus goes on and on about this. We've got to get used to trusting God for today and leaving tomorrow's worries to him. We spend our lives worrying about a future which never comes. We spend our life preparing for a future that we never actually achieve. We sacrifice today in order to provide for tomorrow, only to then do the same thing tomorrow. Sacrificing every today for a future tomorrow. Now, God's provision was very specific. Enough for now, but not too much. And what was this intended to teach them? Why did God set it up this way? Obvious what it was meant to teach them, wasn't it? It was meant to teach them to trust God. That was the lesson God wanted to teach them in the wilderness. To trust God. Every time God provided, they were reminded that they could trust God. Even when they couldn't see how it would work out in the future. Even when there was no guarantee that the manna would be there again tomorrow. Other than God's promise that he would continue to provide. They could trust him with it. But notice, I mean, notice as they read, they don't. You know, God was wanted to teach them to trust him, but they don't trust him. You know, they still take it and store it away and it goes rotten. They still go out on the Sabbath on the Saturday and when God said there won't be any and go, where is it? Like, they, they don't trust him. They, you know, he says it. He, he says, I'm going to provide for you. This is how it's going to work. And I want to teach you to trust me every day. And they don't. They don't trust in God's daily provision. And because of that, they don't obey God. So when God says don't store it up, they do store it up. When God says don't go out on the Sabbath, they do go out on the Sabbath. It isn't, isn't the same true for us. Why do we find it so hard to obey God? Why do you find it so hard to obey God? Think of an area of your life that you find it hard to obey God in. Just identify that now in your head. Or what is it? An area of your life where you think, I struggle to obey God in this area of my life. Why? Why do you struggle? I want to suggest it's because you can't see how God will provide for you if you do obey him in that area. God calls us to love our spouse sacrificially. But what we see is the sacrifice and we cannot, cannot imagine how that sacrifice would be for our good. So instead of our loving our spouse, our spouse sacrificially, we love ourselves. We don't share our money. We don't pursue our husband or wife. We don't put our time into serving them. You see, we don't believe that God could provide for us in that situation, that that could be for our good, and so we don't do it, we don't obey him. God calls us to be generous with our money, but we can't see how God will provide all the things we need and want if we are, and so we hold on to it. We don't give, or we give sufficiently little that we always know we'll have enough. God calls us to love his people, to serve them and encourage them and keep meeting with them. But we can't see how God will provide for us if we pour our time into those people. So we protect our time and keep it for ourselves. God calls us to be sexually faithful, but we can't see how God will meet our sexual needs and desires if we are, and so we watch porn or sleep around or fantasize about someone we shouldn't. God calls on us to be truthful, but we can only see bad outcomes to us telling the truth. And so we lie because we can't imagine how God will provide for us in the hot water that telling the truth will land us in. This is why we disobey God. It's exactly the same reason the Israelites do. Because we can't see how God would provide for us if we obey him. We think it could only go badly. We, st we, we take the extra bit in because we think, well, that if we don't, we won't have enough for tomorrow. Because we can't imagine that God's going to provide for us again tomorrow. 
This is what all disobedience looks like. God calls us to do something. We can't imagine how that could be a good thing, how God would provide for us in that. We don't trust God, and so we don't obey him. Like the Israelites, we disobey God because we worry that he won't come through for us. And so what do we do? We take matters into our own hands. The Christian life is one of obeying God and then trusting him to provide us with whatever we're going to need as a result of that obedience. That's what life looks like. I'm going to do what you call me to do, and I'm going to trust that you are going to provide for me when I do that. I'm going to tell the truth here, even though as far as I can see, it's going to go disastrously, but I'm going to trust that you're going to provide what I need in the situation that I'm walking into by telling the truth there. I'm going to give this stuff away, even though I can, can't imagine how that could be for my good, but I'm going to trust that when you say it's more blessed to give than receive, that you actually meant it. This is what obedience looks like. We do what God calls us to do, and then we trust that God will provide us as, for us as we obey. The Israelites were given manna daily, which enabled them to survive the journey from their rescue to the promised land. Without the manna, they'd never have got there. They, they just wouldn't have. They'd have starved to death. They'd never. They'd have been rescued. They'd never have got to the promised land. Here's, I guess, where I want to finish. We are given a better bread to feed on. You see, when Jesus was on earth, he claimed that he was the true and better bread from heaven. He literally went back to the manna and he said, he said, manna was bread from heaven, but I am the true bread from heaven. I am the bread from heaven that that manna pointed to. What did he mean by that? Well, he meant that he was the true bread which brings life. So they needed the manna because otherwise they'd die. The, the bread made them live. And this is what Jesus says. He says, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. It didn't bring life. Not in the long term. Yeah, it made, meant they survived, but all of them died in the end. But what does he go on to say? He says, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. You see, they ate and they survived for a few years or a few decades until they didn't. But Jesus is true and better because as we feed on him, we enjoy an eternal life. We don't just live now, we live forever. Jesus says, I'm the, I'm the better bread. Manna, it was great for a time, but it couldn't ever deliver the life you needed, but I can. Why else did the Israelites ask for bread? They asked for bread because they wanted to satisfy their hunger. Jesus says, I am the true bread which satisfies hunger. This is what he says. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. You see, you eat the manna, what happens? You get hungry again. You just get hungry again. And even if you don't get physically hung hungry, there is a hunger that food cannot satisfy. There is a longing, a desire, an appetite that all of us have that no amount of manna could ever satisfy. Jesus says, I am the bread that satisfies that hunger. If you come and feed on me, you will never go hungry again. He was the true bread 
which brings knowledge of God. This is what God said. He said, I'm going to give you manna from heaven. And then this is an interesting phrase. He says, then you will know that I am the Lord. Why does God give them manna from heaven? To show himself to them so they can know him. And what does Jesus says, say? He says, no one has ever seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. What's his point? His point is that I am the bread that enables you to see God. You see, Jesus is the bread which doesn't only reveal elements of God's character, but is the exact image of him. So what do we do on our journey from rescue to the promised land? We eat manna every day. We eat bread from heaven every day. We feed every day on Jesus. And as we do that, we find life. And we are satisfied. And we see God. 